Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 106, A Revolutionary Calling. The early life of young Joseph Yugoshvili had not been terribly unique as far as budding revolutionaries went. He had lived a life surrounded by poverty, but had been given an education that gave him the knowledge to make sense of those miseries, and thanks to Marx, imagine an alternative to them. And while his modest good fortune was a step up from the truly dire poverty he might have fallen into had both his parents proven failures, shout out to the resolute Kiki, his education didn't guarantee any place of prominence among the socialists in the Russian Empire. He was still a Georgian, a frontier minority far from the imperial center, and he himself was not especially connected to start off with. His rise to national leadership was far, far from assured, and his career would take its fair share of twists and turns. And yes, I'm going to be covering the bank robbery you've probably heard about at some point. Don't worry. But in the aftermath of his expulsion from the seminary, he first needed to find a job, and in October 1899, he began to work at a weather station, taking down temperatures and barometer readings every hour. The job itself is not interesting, but that it only required his services for a few days every week meant that he had time to devote to his new passion, agitation. He linked up with an old friend from his gory days, Lado Ketskaveli. Lado was older than Soso and had blazed a trail that the younger man had followed down. He had also started in gory and as a son of a priest had gotten into the same seminary that Joseph did, but had been expelled well before Joseph's own terms had started on account of organizing strikes and fighting against the priests there. Lotto and Joseph had kept in touch, and the latter agreed to work under Lotto after his own expulsion. Their first move was to organize a tram worker strike in Tiflis on the new year. Too bad for Stalin, the secret police had already become aware of him and decided to send a little message. They showed up at the weather observatory that he worked at and arrested him. Their justification was because Joseph's father, Besso, had not paid his taxes back in his home village. Besso naturally had not updated his whereabouts with the village authorities back when he first moved to Gori. That kind of thing happened quite often and was not usually followed up on, but they wanted to let Stalin know that they had their eye on him. Stalin, for his part, managed to get friends of the family to help pay off Besso's debt. His dad actually came to visit to check on what was up, and that must have been a short and awkward conversation. On Stalin's release, he ignored the danger around him and went right back to agitation. He was assigned to hidden groups of railway workers who wished to organize and was tasked with guiding their political education and coordination with the local socialist movement. He would spend time with them at their workshops that serviced the trains, and then after work would meet with the groups in their homes and give his lectures which the attendees likened to religious services, which was kind of ironic given Stalin's background, and earned him yet another moniker, the priest. He was successful as a speaker among his fellow Georgians and got a big opportunity on May Day, 1900. Getzkevelli was set to be a speaker at a mass meeting, but the Akrana were on to him as well and he had to skip town to Baku. That meant Stalin got to take his slot. The moderate socialists opposed the strike that Stalin and the other left socialists advocated, but the passion of Stalin and the other radicals won the day. After the meeting, the railway workers went on strike, as did some factories, including the shoe factory that Besso worked at. Stalin walked in to address the workers there, and his dad confronted him about learning a real trade. 
It was a chilly greeting and might have been the last time Stalin actually saw his dad. Stalin, filling in for Ketskaveli, quickly raised his profile, both in the movement and with the Okhrana. In doing so, he was increasingly committing himself to a life in the revolutionary underground. I haven't really gone over the actual experience of such a life, and I'll touch on it a little here. It was one of paranoia, but also camaraderie. One would always be looking over their shoulder, looking out for the leering eye of the police or their informants. Care also had to be taken among one's own revolutionary fellows as well, since even supposed comrades could be compromised. Keep in mind that many figures on the far left both did favors for the secret police and continued their own activities without thinking themselves compromised. It was all part of the give and take of that kind of life. But the camaraderie was very real as well. Once committed to the cause of revolution, old relationships fell away in importance or maybe even became liabilities. The ideas of the Marxists faced social stigma that are familiar even in the modern day. But among your comrades, you found kindred spirits who faced the same danger of arrest or violence. Plus, most all these guys were also educated nerds who loved to stay up late in little holes in the wall, get drunk, and debate theory all night long. They became their own little subculture. But the underground life forced those who partook in it to be conspiratorial, no matter how close one might have been to their friends. And Stalin thrived in such an environment. He operated in Tiflis primarily, and while it was the biggest city in Georgia, it was still distant from the big leagues of socialism in Russia. That Stalin did not come from a place of prominence didn't stop him from forming his own clique within the local Marxist community, and as he would so many times in the future, he found himself with a number of disciples. Many came from Gori or were fellow expellees from the seminary, so they already knew him. Where he had dominated them as students, he continued to do so as a political leader. He was good at putting his followers at ease, and for his entire life, one of Stalin's greatest tools was the ability to utilize personal charm. I won't belabor the point since there's only so much humanizing you can do with a guy like him, but he was honestly fun to hang out with, and before it became obvious he was willing to kill everyone in the room, people gravitated towards him. And for his part, Stalin gravitated towards the uncompromising far left of the movement. Lenin's articles were filtering in, calling for a small but totally committed and uncompromising vanguard party to drive the future revolution of the proletariat. This idea in particular energized Stalin, who even at this early stage had developed a burning desire to be at the forefront of the revolution. He began to speak out against the leadership of the local branch of the Tiflis party, especially against moderates like Jordania. Agitation was all well and good, but Stalin wanted more pinpoint focus, and moreover, he wanted to be in charge of it. Part of that desire might have been the fact that his activities had closed the door on leading a normal life. On March 21, 1901, the weather observatory he worked at was raided by the police, Though he wasn't there, as he recounted later that he had noticed plainclothes cops while in the tram going to work and correctly figured they were after him. He opted to remain on the tram and just kept on going. He knew then that he was committed to the life that he had chosen. He was a wanted man, and he permanently slipped into the underground. He no longer had a home, and he drifted from safe house to safe house, living on what he could be offered from friends and party colleagues. In one amusing example of evasion, he was staying at a friend's house when it was raided. He hurriedly wrapped himself in bandages and posed as an invalid. The cops on the scene didn't pay him any mind and left. 
when it was explained to them that they were morons and to go arrest the invalid, Stalin was long gone. He was in no mood to back down from the authorities either, helping organize a 2,000-person May Day march through central Tiflis in 1901. The workers on the scene were whipped into a frenzy and stood fast against charging Cossack cavalry that had been deployed against them. For the first time, blood was running through the streets through his efforts, and it would not be the last. The moderates, though, were getting really mad at him and his followers. Stalin to them represented a kind of country bumpkin who lacked the education and socially proper mind to build a respectable movement. This ignored the fact that Stalin was a voracious reader, and while many of his fellows wasted time socializing with their comrades, he was hitting the books and sharpening his mind. Which, yes, Stalin does not have a great reputation as a Marxist thinker himself, but regardless of your potential opinion on his output, he put in the work and was not at all the bumpkin that many claimed him to be. There is an element of class disparagement in play there, as many of his critics in Tiflis disliked him because of his modest background, combined with his pretensions of leadership. There was also the case of Jordania, who caught most of the heat after the 1901 May Day March. Jordania went to jail for a year while Stalin skipped town and returned to Gori for a few days to visit his mom while the heat died down. Jordania might have had an issue taking the fall for that one. But luckily for Stalin, Getzkevelli was well-connected in the party, and so Stalin didn't have to suffer any dire repercussions for his attacks on the moderate party leadership. Towards the end of 1901, he was even starting to run meetings, culminating in being elected to a leadership position on the Committee for Tiflis on November 11th. The meeting was interesting because the moderates had spent part of the night condemning him for wanting to exclude workers from leadership on the committee, but then turned around and elected him anyway based on his organizational talents. And in case you're wondering what his deal was with excluding the workers, he was going on Leninist principles that only dedicated revolutionaries could be trusted in such positions. The other reason it's interesting is because with his elevation, he was also given a high-profile assignment out of town. The moderates basically promoted him away. It's not exactly known when Stalin left Tiflis, but by the end of November, the police noticed that he had vanished. He had, in fact, been deployed to the Black Sea coast, to the town of Batumi. The city was a boomtown, just 12 miles from the Turkish border. Importantly, on the other end of the Caucasus was the city of Baku, where it was discovered underground a veritable ocean of oil that is, to this day, still being tapped as a major source for the world. Back then, it was an even bigger chunk of the world's output and would break the American monopoly on oil in Europe. But Baku sits on the inland Caspian Sea, and that oil couldn't be shipped out by boat directly. A pipeline had to be built, and its terminus was Batumi, where the oil would then be refined and shipped by tanker. The refineries there were owned and operated by the famous Rothschilds family, and the town's new proletariat seemed fertile ground for spreading Marxist thinking. While the refineries and pipelines leaked poison into the squalid communities of the workers, the money classes, much of them foreigners, developed villas along the coast, well away from their place of business. Stalin wasted no time upon his arrival. He quickly made it clear to his comrades in the area that he was going to be far more proactive than they were used to, and immediately engaged with the workers, meeting with them and ingratiating himself. They had no idea who he was, but he spoke determinedly and was much more a common man than they were used to when dealing with socialist agitators. And he wasn't lying when he said he was going to be more proactive. 
He wound up getting a job at the refinery under an assumed name. And why would he do that, you ask? Because on January 4th, 1902, Stalin, allegedly, but probably him, sabotaged the refineries, starting a massive fire. The workers managed to put it out, but a rude shock awaited them. Workers were supposed to get a bonus for stamping out a refinery fire, but management figured it was arson and refused to pay out. This, and I really do mean no pun intended here, fueled the fire that Stalin was looking to build. The workers went on strike, and Stalin rushed back to Tiflis to get a printing press to start getting some propaganda going. By February 17th, management caved and gave the workers a raise on top of their expected bonus. This did set the authorities off, and the police in Batumi went on the hunt for socialists, with Stalin being a special target. Management also decided to strike back, and on February 26th, dismissed 389 workers who had been active in the strikes, which just meant the workers went right back on strike again. This time, Stalin went a step further and convinced the workers to shut down the oil terminal entirely. Now, oil wasn't leaving the port at all. His combination of intellectualism and boldness impressed the workers, but the older socialists had their qualms. They were under intense scrutiny while Stalin and the cops played cat and mouse. Stalin also once again organized the younger socialists around him and radicalized them so that they obeyed him first and their older leaders second. Eventually, the military had to get involved and troops entered Batumi. On March 7th, the provincial governor declared the workers would either return to their posts or be shipped off to Siberia, and mass arrests ensued. Stalin hatched a plan to confront the authorities directly. He organized protests, and on the 9th, he led a crowd to march on the prison and demand those arrested be released. However, an informant tipped the authorities off, and the Cossacks were waiting on the scene. Stalin kept the crowd ordered, and the two sides clashed. Shooting started, and the masses did what they could to get into melee range of the soldiers. The prisoners inside attempted to overcome their guards, with a few actually succeeding in getting away. Stalin rallied the people as long as he could before they were dispersed under volleys of rifle fire. Thirteen were dead, and fifty-four were wounded. The Batumi massacre caught national attention, and some among the greater party leadership became aware of Stalin. But the more local leaders, again like Jordania, were again incensed. They figured he was deliberately bringing the attention of the regime down upon them in order to destroy them. Stalin was forced deeper into hiding. He did everything he could to change his appearance, changed his outfits as often as possible, and even hid out with his printing press in a cemetery. He briefly wound up in the home of an old highwayman, who was interested in using the press to counterfeit currency. He would hide out there for the next month, printing his pamphlets and coming under the protection of his host and the small Muslim community he lived in. Stalin also started going back out, but had to constantly scramble meeting places as the police were definitely on his trail. Finally, on April 5th, an informant ratted him out and he was arrested that night. Having finally been captured, he was thrown into Batumi prison, where he quickly became its boss, at least among the prisoners, and knew of every coming and going. He didn't limit his friends there to fellow revolutionaries either, and gained popularity with the normal criminals as well. Much like when operating in the RSDLP, he ignored the established rules of etiquette in his interactions. Over the summer, his case was investigated, but due to a lack of evidence and there not being any witnesses able to come forward, 
Stalin was cleared of wrongdoing related to the Batumi massacre. The cops kept him incarcerated, though, as he was also being investigated for being part of the Tiflis Committee, what with being a socialist being illegal and all. His case dragged on, deliberately so, and in April 1903, he led a protest that turned into a prison riot. That little incident got him transferred to Kutaisi Prison, a far harsher environment to the northeast of Batumi. The transfer wasn't well documented, and the Batumi authorities assumed he was eventually released. So when orders came from the Tsarist authorities to actually exile him, they couldn't find him. They had forgotten that he had been sent to Kutaisi, and the Kutaisi authorities were unaware that any special fate was in store for him. It eventually took a month and a half just to locate him, so it was only on October 8, 1903, that Stalin learned that he was headed for Siberia. Siberian exile, a classic Tsarist punishment. And to the mind of this American, it was a really weird one. You get shipped by train to the ends of the earth and sent to live in accommodations, usually in or near a local community. You are given a small stipend based on your class and could come and go as you pleased within the confines of the area you were assigned to. The stipend was higher for nobles, so Stalin wound up getting the lowest amount possible, while, for example, Lenin's allowance was much greater. And you could also get support from home as well. This kind of worked because the only way back was across the Trans-Siberian Railway, which, as you are all very well aware by now, is just a straight shot and therefore easily monitored. Escape by foot presented intimidating drawbacks in a land as big as Siberia. And if you caused trouble in the village, well, if the authorities didn't handle you, the locals would very quickly. That being said, keeping people in Siberia was troublesome when money was involved. Money could be raised back home and sent east, whereupon it would be used for fake papers, bribes, and clothes for a disguise. Even though his sentence was three years, he would be getting a kind of early parole, similar to tens of thousands of other escapees. And Stalin, like most other exiles, wasn't alone in his circumstances. They were oftentimes lumped together and either formed their own little sub-community or even cohabitated. Although it was a little rough for the political exiles, as they were lumped in with the common criminals. Stalin experienced this himself when he made a joke at the expense of a professional safecracker, whereupon the much larger man knocked Stalin out and broke his ribs. The change from verdant mountains to endless forests that had that infamous penchant for long winters proved a big change for Stalin. He was leaving the only world he had ever known, and it was not exactly a step up. He disembarked from his train at Irkutsk, that major regional city near Lake Baikal, and transferred onto a barred wagon. It was November and already freezing, and he was underdressed for his new surroundings. He arrived at Novaya Uda, his final destination on November 26th. He shacked up with a poor peasant family and rented a room from them, one of two they owned, and it being a larder where food was stored to boot. He spent most of his time drinking, although he would claim dubious hunting merits later in life. He despised his fellow political exiles, seeing them as weak, gossiping intellectuals, and instead hung out with the criminals, joining them on their drinking binges. But even as he settled in, he was looking for ways out. He first tried to escape as early as December, but as you might imagine, there were logistical difficulties of traveling on foot in Siberia at that time of year. Suffering from frostbite, he returned to Novaya Uda. He had his mom tailor the proper clothes back home and had them shipped east, 
and in January 1904 was off again. He traveled with a peasant, catching a ride on the man's wagon under the pretense of complaining about the local police chief to a higher authority. When the peasant realized midway that Stalin intended to escape, Stalin opened his coat to reveal a saber he had acquired, to which the peasant sighed and continued the trip. But Stalin's real ace in the hole was his fake ID that he had purchased, that of a police agent, which gave him a layer of clout that was hard to argue with. In fact, when he was stopped at a train station by the police, he showed them his ID and told them that another police tale that he picked up was actually a man escaping exile, leading the two cops to arrest the agent and let Stalin go on his merry way. By mid-January, he was back home in Tiflis. By that time, Russia was deep into the Russo-Japanese War, and nobody was having a good time. Except for enemies of the regime, that is. Stalin, though, was still a wanted man. Just because you escape from Siberia doesn't mean the authorities stop looking for you. And they figured he'd go right back to Georgia. And they were right. He went straight to Gori and bounced between there and Batumi and Tiflis. The socialists didn't entirely trust him, both for inviting so much scrutiny back in Batumi and because they were also conspiratorially minded and suspected he was in cahoots with the Akrana. But he had his supporters and was soon back in a leadership position, although still on the run. There would be an added wrinkle now, though. The leadership was split between the Bolsheviks, who, as Lenin dictated, favored that small elite group of dedicated revolutionaries, and the Mensheviks, who favored a broader membership base and a slower path to revolution. While the socialists bickered, Georgia was ablaze with activity. The war was not going well, and the Georgian peasants took that as their cue to attack the nobility and seize their lands. Stalin focused his activities in the villages of western Georgia, making his base of operations the city of Kutaisi, where he had been imprisoned before his exile. From Kutaisi, he focused most of his efforts on undermining the Mensheviks, of which his old nemesis, Jordania, naturally counted himself as a member. In the second half of 1904, he began making trips to Baku, helping organize the oil workers there. He was actually in Baku on January 9, 1905, when Bloody Sunday happened in St. Petersburg. The empire overnight went from shaky footing to actively crumbling, and Stalin was there for the chaos that gripped every corner of it. A month after the massacre, Baku exploded in a frenzy of ethnic violence as the Azerbaijanis and Armenians turned against each other. For five days, from February 6th to the 11th, street battles erupted while the government stood aside. It had broken out when an Armenian had killed an Azerbaijani, but by the end it was just settling old scores. 2,000 people died, and Stalin led the Bolsheviks into forcing a ceasefire, managing to convince members of both ethnic groups to stay away from each other, as well as sold the Bolsheviks' services as a protection group in exchange for money. He wouldn't stay long in Baku, though, and went right back to Tiflis, again jockeying against the Mensheviks. That branch of the socialists were increasingly in the ascendancy in Georgia, and Stalin found himself fighting a rearguard action on behalf of the Bolsheviks to maintain their popularity there. A vital source of support for the Bolsheviks in Georgia were the Chiatura manganese mines, that mineral being a useful alloy when making good steel. The town was close to Kutaisi, and the mines produced over half the world's output of the mineral. Naturally, the profits were not shared accordingly, and the environment was choked in the dust of the manganese. 
Workers were so poor, they lived down in the mines. Stalin's down-to-earth style appealed to the miners, and they initially chose him as their leader over the Mensheviks. From the impoverished community, he oversaw the training of partisans who began to ambush isolated troops. They also robbed smaller banks and picked off cops as well. On account of the regime collapsing due to the fallout from the Russo-Japanese War, there wasn't much to stop them. Even the local business class made their arrangements with Stalin in order to protect their interests and keep them going, and so bankrolled his partisans. The actual imperial authorities melted away. Those that didn't leave or play ball were shot in the streets. This started to include the Mensheviks, and the Caucasus endured a light civil war between the two factions. The Mensheviks dominated Tiflis, but split Baku and Batumi with the Bolsheviks, while the latter held Kutaisi. When Stalin stepped up his protection rackets, they were also designed to keep out Menshevik activities as well. Through all of 1905, the Caucasus spiraled out of control. Scores of officials were killed, with even the governor of Baku being assassinated. Soldiers were subject to bombings. It was all bedlam, and Stalin was doing great. Even better, his activities as de facto Bolshevik leaders in the Caucasus had gotten him brought to Lenin's attentions, and Stalin started reporting to the man he admired so much. But even better than coming to the attentions of the larger party's leadership, it was during those chaotic days of constantly being on the move that Stalin was going to fall in love. Yes, I know that sounds odd giving, well, I mean, it's Stalin, but most everybody agrees that on this first occasion, this was the real deal. And just because I haven't checked in on his love life doesn't mean young Joseph shunned romantic partnerships. Far from it. He had fallen in love early on as a boy with the daughter of the priest that had taught him Russian, although that was never reciprocated beyond having a close friendship. He would bring it up much later in life, although that might have been a much older man wistfully remembering the foibles of youth more than anything else. He was involved in much more tangible relationships all through his vagabond life, though, and he very likely fathered at least one illegitimate child by this early time, with plenty more on the way in the future. That's also why I haven't really lingered on those relationships. They were extremely off and on, very non-committal, and Stalin's underground lifestyle prevented deep and long-lasting relationships. That was until a comrade of his in Tiflis, named Alyosha Savanidze, invited him to stay at his place, where he lived with his three sisters. The three women helped run Adelier, which is a fancy word for a dress-and-uniform-making workshop, basically a place that catered to higher-end customers. It was a fun fit, as Alyosha and his brother-in-law, also a Bolshevik, already used it as a meeting place. Due to the classy clientele, and also because it was adjacent to the regional military headquarters, the authorities didn't look too closely into the place, which would also make it a perfect place for Stalin to hide out. It was, to say the least, a much more comfortable place to stay in than what he had been used to, and he took to his new digs immediately. He enjoyed being in an environment surrounded by women, but it was one that caught his eye, Alyosha's younger sister, Ekaterin, or just Kato for short. Surrounded by Marxists already, she had no disapproval of the men's activities in the Atelier, and quickly found Soso to be quite the charmer, especially when he sang for her. They would keep their relationship hush-hush for a time, as Stalin was still out and about on party business, 
but she was the one he kept coming back home to. That being said, his commitment to the party by this point was absolute. It was his life. And he was going to take the criminal activity side of things a step further. And next week, we're going to cover Stalin forming a crack team of revolutionary criminals whose activities would climax with a literally explosive heist in the middle of Tiflis. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.